Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and partner in crime, Mark Sandkrant. Mark, thanks for jumping on the call. Thanks, Corn. Glad to be here and look forward to our chat today. So Mark and I, I've been trying to get a hold of Mark for a while. Our schedules haven't quite lined up, but I'm super excited to bring Mark on to Truth About Exits as we'll be doing a weekly show talking about more of the nuance of deal making and even some of the deals we're working on for what we can disclose publicly. Obviously, there's non-disclosure agreements in play in a lot of these deals, so we can't talk about everything. But the things we can talk about will definitely go into some detail. But today for By way of introduction, I'd like to introduce you to Mark to you, the listener, and so you can get a sense of where Mark's background is, where you might want to be listening or why you might want to be listening to Mark and some of the experience that he has as well. So let's jump in. So Mark, when people ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, After 20 years, I'm still trying to figure that one out, (laughs) but Generally, what I say is I am a kind of career M&A professional, so, you know, focused on mergers and acquisitions, but with an eye towards strategy. So, you know, what's the reason behind the deal, not just doing deals? So I typically, depending on the person I'm speaking with, though, that might get translated into I do finance work, but I don't think of M&A as purely finance. I think of it as, you know, encompasses all aspects of a business from the operational side to the strategy side to the finance side, of course. But then also, you know, I spent a lot of time on the psychology side when you're working with a business owner that's about to sell their business, you know, psychology certainly comes into play and and understanding how to communicate is an important factor of that. Absolutely. And we'll definitely do some deep dives on that for sure. I see that more and more. Actually, the larger the deals get, the more psychology and the more relationships matter Absolutely. is what I'm what I'm finding. And yeah, I've learned a lot of that and working with you as well. So awesome. Okay. Well, you mentioned 20 years of background, so that's obviously a lot to go with. Could you take us through what maybe some high points of that career, maybe starting back in your investment banking days and just walk us through what you did there and then we can kind of skip forward a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, all 20 years have had an M&A component to them. I started my career in kind of traditional investment banking in New York with Prudential Securities. So within that role, that was working with very large, in most cases, public companies on a variety of you know financial needs, whether it was raising debt, raising equity, both from the public and private markets, but also a lot on the M&A side that could have entailed you know sell-side advisory work, buy-side advisory work, fairness opinions, general valuation work, things of that nature. 
from Prudential, I moved to a boutique called Bluestone Capital. That's where I kind of got my first taste of technology. And that was right around the burst of the bubble in 2000 and 2001. But again, that role still traditional investment banking, but with earlier stage businesses. So in that case, it was a lot of capital raising uh, for businesses that were maybe looking for the round prior to going public. In some cases, it was public offerings. And then again, a lot of sell-side M&A work. And then from and there, just, I actually... Before, oh, go ahead. Sorry, mate. Yeah, just before you go jumping forward, I'd love to highlight two things that I get asked quite a lot. Yeah. And we've even talked a little bit about this, but I'll play newbie in this call to uh, break it down for people a little bit more. In your experience and understanding, could you break down capital raising into, you mentioned debt, raising debt and raising equity. So could you explain the differences between those and maybe a, a quick example of when one would make more sense than the other? Yeah, absolutely. So with debt, you can always think of debt as no different than going to the bank and borrowing money to buy a house. So with debt, there's an expectation that the borrowing is going to be repaid at some point in the future. And typically that debt is also secured by some asset. So as a result, you know, generally debt is the cheapest form of capital that a business could use. On the equity side, you know, there's no guarantee that you'll get your capital back if you're an investor, just like in the stock market. So with equity, it tends to be much more expensive than debt, and it's capital that's a little bit more permanent, you know, it, since there's no expectation that capital is going to be returned to the investor in a certain time frame. It tends to be more expensive and kind of considered more permanent capital. Okay, great. That kind of answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And with the debt raising specifically, uh -huh. just one more question on that, and then we'll we'll jump forward. Everyone, oh, most people would understand equity raising through VCs or yes. private private investors. But with debt raising specifically, I have had a couple of people recently actually ask me about raising debt. So I'm, I'm keen to get these answers from you as well. So who would you typically reach out to if you're, other than yourself, obviously, um, getting help from an advisor, who are you typically reaching out to to go and raise debt? So you mentioned banks. So are you going out to banks for commercial loans or is there other channels? Um, and obviously, it depends on the size of the business too. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you know, banks are certainly one of the first places you might contact if you're looking to raise some debt. Typically, banks are going to be the most conservative meaning they're really going to want to understand the borrowing entity's business and make sure that it's clear that there's a way that they'll be repaid. And generally, they look for more than one form of repayment, right? So one form of repayment might be cash flow from the business. But in other cases, it might be assets that are securing it, such as a equipment loan. And then in other cases, the bank also might require a personal guarantee. So in that case, you know, there might be three ways that the bank gets paid, but the bank is going to do everything they can to ensure that they get paid. And that's also why their capital is generally the cheapest. There are a number of non-bank kind of financial institutions that have been, well, I was about to say popping up, but in reality, it's been going on for about 20 years. But a number of non-bank financial institutions that lend money as well. Those could be, you know, mezzanine lenders, they could be equipment finance companies, it could be commercial lenders as well, but non-bank. 
So typically with those, they might be a little less restrictive with who they will lend to. But as a result, they're taking on additional risk. And generally speaking, their capital will be a little bit more expensive than a bank's. And then there's always um, private individuals, you know, who are looking for a different asset class. In some cases, private individuals might be interested in loaning money or lending money as opposed to looking at an equity investment. When I began my career, I was doing a lot of securitization work, which kind of got a bad rap, not unfairly, <laughs> by the way. But in the you know 2007, 2008 timeframe, people heard a lot about CDOs and CMOs, which are debt instruments. In those cases, you know, you start looking at investors that are not banks. They're not necessarily in financial institutions. They're just very large investors that are looking for debt obligations, again, to spread out their assets across different investment classes. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I think that covers that point quite well. So let's jump forward. So from those two experiences in internet, <laughs> I have iBanking written down. I, I read out internet banking, <laughs> of course, meaning investment banking. <laughs> so where did you go after Bluestone? Yeah, so Bluestone was where I first got my taste with working with earlier stage businesses. And I, I really, really liked that because I was dealing more with uh, entrepreneurs as opposed to kind of seasoned professionals. And I just found it more exciting because they were not necessarily sure where they were going as many entrepreneurs aren't, but they had a vision and they, in some cases, needed some help pursuing that vision or executing on that vision. So after I left Bluestone, I actually went to work for myself and I was doing a lot of advisory work with earlier stage businesses, whether it was helping them think through their strategy on how to grow their business or helping them develop financial models or business plans, things of that nature. But I also, at the same time, was doing a lot of M&A work, predominantly on the buy side. I've, throughout my career, I've done a lot of buy side M&A work, so helping businesses acquire other businesses as opposed to selling. Um, but so I spent the next seven or so years on my own, both in New York, and then I relocated back to Ohio during that time frame and, you know, continued to work with these earlier stage businesses, which I started to find a niche and more of a passion for because, again, it's pretty exciting when you're sitting across the table from an entrepreneur who has this grand vision and just needs some help putting all the, the puzzle pieces into place. I, I found that a lot more fulfilling than working with a, a billion-dollar company that, at the end of the day, I wasn't going to really provide them any insight that was going to move the needle at all anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of soulless at that point. Yeah. They trade businesses like it's chips on a table kind of thing. That's right. <laughs> I'm right there with you on the working with founders and entrepreneurs. There's a different energy there for sure. Definitely. So from there, you went and took corporate development. So could you explain what corporate development is? Yeah, for those absolutely. That have never me, heard that um, before? before kind of talking about that, talk a little bit about why I made that decision. So at that point in my career, I had about 10 years of advisory experience. So, you know, working with clients on a variety of matters. And I looked at my career and I liked the experience that I had gained, but I also realized I was missing a key component, which was the operational side. I've always been the guy that would make recommendations, but I didn't have to live with them and didn't know what it meant to go actually <laughs> execute. So I, I thought it would be pretty interesting to gain operational experience. And I came across an opportunity to build out the corporate development capability for an online media company called INET Interactive. 
So to get back to your question about what exactly corporate development is, the way that I see corporate development, it's really focused on a, a number of issues, but the primary one is around strategy and growth. So how is the organization going to both grow and create value, but also what's the strategy behind that? How are they going to do that? In our case with INET Interactive, the strategy was heavily based on a kind of a buy and build strategy, so M&A focused. And then, so my role not only entailed developing that strategy and putting the processes in place to execute it, but then it also got into more operational aspects such as, you know, integration once we made an acquisition, actually integrating the acquired company into ours. It also entails things like partnerships. And at the end of the day, I, I look at corporate development, you know, as I started off mentioning heavily focused on strategy, but I also really see corporate development as kind of the corporate relationship arm. So I was the guy that was just kind of out there, you know, trying to develop new insights that would be helpful for our organization, but also developing relationships that, you know, may or may not lead to something. Those relationships could potentially lead to acquisitions, in some cases lead to partnerships or client relationships. And in other instances, it might turn into, you know, a company that might have an interest in acquiring us. So I, I looked at it very much as a relationship role, but heavily focused on strategy. And then in our case, that the mechanism to execute the strategy was m and Awesome. And I've only got about 200 questions from what you just said, but I'll let the listeners know that if like us, you are deal nerds or budding deal nerds and want to know more about how all of that works, we are planning many episodes to break this down, but also specifically a series on roll-ups in particular. And we'll break down this in more detail. So just hold five on that. We'll be back to that point. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty exciting. You do a lot of the stuff that essentially in corporate development, from my perspective, is you do a lot of the things that entrepreneurs understand conceptually, or maybe they've gone to college and get as a concept, but you actually pull the trigger and and make that happen. And like you said, once the operations, once you got exposure to the operations side as well, that was what you were chasing. So was there anything different once you were in operating with INET, as you said, after the acquisitions happened and going through that whole process, was there anything that was different, say from a textbook or as a concept that you understood when you actually had to integrate these um, or work on the team integrating the acquisitions after, after the acquisition and then going to do the final sale as well? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, when you look at what you might learn via textbooks or whether it's, you know, formal college level course or just things you might read online, you're never really prepared for it until you actually get out there and do it. And what I mean by that is you might have some preconceived notions on what the most important things to focus on are. And once you actually get into it, particularly when you're an operator and not simply an advisor, you you learn very quickly what really is important. And, you know, a quick example of that is, you know, as an advisor or maybe someone that just came out of MBA program or even undergraduate level program that might have an interest in M&A, immediately, you know, you start thinking about all the different financial formulas you've learned, you know, the CAPM and WAC and all these other great things, and you're, you're ready to put them into place and start utilizing them. And then you get into a, a transaction and you realize, okay, yeah, that 
that stuff's kind of important and how much we ultimately are paying for this business is it's not irrelevant, but what you learn real quickly is that things like culture and, you know, how the prior owner is going to transition out and how they're going to help the new employees or the new business transition in those, that's where deals get made or broken. You know, things that you, you don't really learn about from a deal-making standpoint in school, that's where you you lose money or you make money. And cultural fit is by far, in my mind, one of the key aspects to any acquisition. If there's not a cultural fit, it's going to be an uphill battle. And I'd rather personally go in and buy a business that needs some fixing up. Maybe it's got products that need to be revamped or whatever. I'd rather do that than acquire a business that needs a culture to be worked on or reworked or take two different cultures and try to put them together. That's just, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've seen that secondhand in a, um, in a very large transaction myself. That's interesting, mate. And we see this even on small levels oh, where there's maybe a first time investor coming into a business and a small team running a business that still plays a part in how long the staff stay on after the acquisition and um, operations is definitely something different to just the acquisition side of things. So just one quick question on this and then we'll move on because obviously we'll be talking about this in depth on the roll-up episodes. But if say you're talking to a founder who has some entrepreneurial background, they have a business that's growing already organically, and they're looking to get into the acquisition side of things to build their company into a larger business, maybe achieve growth faster or whatever their goal is. So that's probably the first thing you would say. But what would be the next thing you would advise someone if they had a goal in place? What would the next step be as far as the first step into looking at acquisitions? Uh, calling me. That, that was a joke, Corey. <laughs> calling me right. and asking me what to do next yes <laughs> sorry man I, I literally thought you said someone was calling oh, no. you <laughs> no that, my recommendation would be to have them call me <laughs> excellent yeah so you, you bring up a great point because i kind of look at it as th- there's a lot of acquisition models out there and as you mentioned you know we'll, we'll be talking about roll-ups at a, a future podcast but you kind of hit the nail on the head with, you know, what, what is your ultimate goal? And I think a lot of people see maybe the sex appeal around an acquisition and think that that's the way that they want to grow their business or it's a way that, you know, they can create some value for themselves or their business. But yeah, it's taken another step from just identifying the goal and really understanding you know, what it means to do that. So I think there's a couple ways to answer your question. Absolutely. I kind of joked a little bit, but absolutely talking to an advisor, someone that can help you navigate what it means to go out and actually acquire a business, what that really means and what all it entails, because it's actually a lot of work. And if you're trying to operate a business at the same time, one of them you're going to be really good at and the other one's going to fail. So it's not always the one that uh, you think is going to happen, but maybe you're really good at the search process and can go find a business to buy, but your your core business might suffer at the same time. So I, I would start with looking at, you know, talking to advisors to really understand what the process entails and, and how to go about it. 
I would always consider or think, really think through the whole process of what the end goal is. So why is it that you want to make an acquisition or why is it that you feel that you need to make an acquisition? You know, a lot of businesses, particularly larger ones, will go through buy versus build exercises. So you might have a, I'll give kind of a real world example, a software business that would like to go into a different market and their software doesn't serve that market. Well, they understand software. They could go out and build a new product that serves this new market, or they could look at an acquisition as a way to kind of jumpstart that process. So again, it is all goal oriented. So what at the end of the day is your goal? And then how's the easiest way that you can achieve your goal? So again, you know, I'd I'd say start with talking to an advisor or doing any sort of reading that you can to just kind of learn the process and the nuances because every advisor is going to have different experiences. Some may have better experiences than others. So, you know, I I would take any advice you get uh, with somewhat of a grain of salt and just do everything you can to educate yourself about the process. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of mirrors almost a lot of the conversations we have with people when they're thinking about selling their business or exiting the business. It's also the same. Uh, What's your goal? Uh, What are the alternatives? (laughs) It's kind of the same thing. Just a bit of a loaded or maybe a strange question, but have you ever seen an example? It's okay if you haven't. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. If I'm, I'm just wondering if there's if you've ever seen an example where building would have been better or faster than acquiring, because from the outside looking in, it seems to me at least as a a novice who hasn't done this, uh, personally, as you said, the operator um, side of things, is there ever an example or in your mind, there would be a case where building would probably be faster or better than acquisitions? Yeah, absolutely. Or vice versa. Um, The thing that As you're going through an exercise, a buy and build exercise, the thing you always kind of forget is how long things really take to do the work. And uh, I'll give a couple examples on that. So actually kind of some very real life examples. So I I was a co-founder of a company called D2C Brands, which was a buy and build strategy focused on e-commerce and consumer products. And our plan was to acquire five to seven businesses a relatively short period of time. And we made one acquisition and got into it and started doing a lot of the brand work like we had planned on doing and realized that it was a lot more difficult than we had initially thought to do some of that brand work. And, you know, as we started looking at acquisition number two, the question began to be asked, of, you know, do we want to go through this process again of acquiring something and then taking what we acquired, which from a time, your question around timing, yeah, that can happen relatively quickly if if you know what you're looking for and there's a, a ready seller, that can happen pretty quickly. But how long does it take for you to retrofit that business into what it is that you actually want? And then in our case, we looked at it as, hey, we now have a supply chain. We have channels that we can sell products through. Does it make more sense to just launch a new brand as opposed to acquire one? And we, from the outset, can have it be exactly what we want it to be. And we actually can remove some of the risk because we're not going to have to tinker around with what we've acquired and and maybe screw things up. So, you know, that's one case where I think uh, depending on what the overall 
outcome that you're seeking or the goal that you're seeking is, there might be some real good reasons to build as opposed to buy. And unfortunately, a lot of those things aren't real evident until you actually get in and make an acquisition and and learn a little more about it. Yeah, for sure. And I think if it's not coming through in this conversation, I'll just point it out. This is definitely the reason you and I do what we do. (laughs) Because the the nuance of each deal, I can hear your brain ticking as we're talking, the cogs moving, because it, it is such a puzzle piece. And everything is unique. Every business is unique. Every founder, every operations team, even the acquisition opportunities can really dictate which route is the best way to go. And of course, being advisors will always say this, but honestly, that is the best way to go is to bring in an advisory team to help you with those decisions. Don't rely on um, just gut feel or or assumptions because oftentimes those assumptions will be wrong. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm a big fan of education and not necessarily in kind of the formal setting, but any sort of thing you can do as an entrepreneur to learn more about business, whether it's talking to advisors and giving free advice or reading or taking classes, whatever it might be, that the education process should never, ever stop because there are so many nuances to operating and and building businesses. So I'm a big advocate of uh, doing a lot of reading and talking to people and learning from others. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully this show will help too. Between our conversations and some of the other interviews we'll be doing, hopefully that'll give one another lens for people to to use. Okay, cool. That's awesome. That's a a nice uh, little intro into corporate development and why people might be interested in learning more about corporate development now they know what it is. So is there any other pieces of interesting tips or or things, examples you'd like to talk about? Specifically, once you jumped into the operations side, is there anything else before we go into the roll-up conversation, of course, which I'm kind of itching to go into, but is there anything else that you'd like to mention just on this brief intro? Um, Yeah, and, and maybe just kind of a quick segue into what I'm doing today. So, you know, after gaining that operational experience, you know, it, it was quite honestly, eye-opening because as an advisor, you know, helping clients in the past, you know, get from point A to point B, whether it's capital raising or helping them buy or sell a business. Once the transaction closed, you know, I kind of felt like I always moved on to the next next client or next deal. And then so when you actually have to live with it, it gives you a whole new appreciation of how to structure transactions it gives you, uh, I think for me, it put me into a better position to better advise others now that I have that operational experience and can kind of empathize with the founder or an entrepreneur about what it might mean to you know, sell the business or buy a business or raise capital. You know, Having gone through that experience, I think, prepared me better for that. And so now kind of the segue into where I am now, after doing the corporate development and kind of strategy side of things for about 10 years, so same amount that I've been an advisor, I realized that my personality, you know, let me take a quick step back. I went through the process at 46 of taking a step back and trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I had the uh, benefit of having 20 years of experience behind me to really help kind of guide that process. 
But as much as I liked the being on the kind of the corporate side or the internal side, you know, the thing that stood out for me is I'm a more of a natural networker and relationship person. And I saw a better opportunity for me to appease that side of my personality as an advisor. And then I also realized now that I've, you know, have about 10 years of advisory experience, but also 10 years of operational experience that it put me into a pretty unique position to, as I mentioned before, better advise. So I made the decision a little less than a year ago to return to the advisory side of the world and kind of leverage my experience, not only as an advisor, but also my experience as someone that's acquired businesses operated businesses, and then ultimately sold businesses. So I kind of see it as coming full circle and bringing that full solution to my clients now. Yeah, absolutely. And we started out, or I started out as a client of yours, I guess we would say, and now moving more into a colleague type arrangement. And I can 100% say that your depth of knowledge is is impressive and super valuable when it comes to the nuances of deal making. It's, you know, as as you and I both know, but as some of the listeners may not realize is you know, once you get a deal on the table, whether you're buying something, whether your business is up for sale, that's really just step one. <laughs> yeah. Getting someone to be interested or put an offer on the table is literally step one. It's everything that happens after that to get you through that finish line that really is what we'll be talking about on this show. And you're a master at that. Yeah, thing, so I'd highly recommend anyone to you know reach out to you and and yeah, seek your advice in any Absolutely. of those areas. Yeah, very, very valuable. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, I think that's a great first episode. I guess the natural next question, Mark, is how can people reach out to you if they do want to seek some of your advice? Yeah, I'd say the easiest, well, probably a couple of easy ways. LinkedIn, um, it's always a, a good path. I'm on there quite a bit sharing content as, as I come across interesting content. I can be mail, emailed directly at um, Mark with a K at blueashcapital.com. Those are probably the two most efficient ways uh, to get to me, and I'm generally responsive. So yeah, if anyone uh, should ever have any questions, feel free to to reach out. I'm happy to, to share some advice and some insights and help where I can. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes, but uh, you'll be a regular on this podcast. So there'll be lots of opportunity for people to reach out to you as well. But like I said earlier, highly recommend reaching out to Mark and at least having a conversation if, if you're looking about into any looking for solid advice in any of these areas, definitely reach out to Mark. Awesome. Well, thanks for um, for agreeing to come on the podcast and and being a regular guest. So I really appreciate it. And I can't wait. Yeah, for I, think, I think we're going to have a lot of fun and explore some pretty interesting topics and maybe uh, think about things in a, a little bit differently than others might be. Absolutely. That's the goal. All right, mate. I'll talk okay, to you again thanks, soon. Corin. Take care. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals. And my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. 
The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.